Mm, amen. We're nearing the end of the book of Acts. I can't believe it. You know who's going to preach the last sermon in the book of Acts? The, the very last, final, wrap it all up together, November 29th, our own Evan Kuntz, our uh, youth pastor, is going to preach on November 29th. I can't wait. And last week we saw the dramatic confrontation between Paul and the Jewish authorities when he finally arrived in Jerusalem and he's in the temple courts and he knew he was going to face serious opposition uh, there in Jerusalem, but he didn't expect a full-blown riot to break out as it did in the temple courts when he showed up there to take his Nazarite vow. Remember how in chapter 21 they, they saw him there in the temple and some of the, the Jewish authorities yelled out, there he is. There's the guy who's been running around the whole world telling people that they don't need to follow the Mosaic law anymore and that they uh, don't need to do anything Jewish anymore. He's, he's killing Judaism. We got we to gotta get him. And now he's defiling God's house by bringing Greeks in here. It was kind of a racist charge that they made against him. And the text said the whole city was thrown into confusion. So the, the Roman tribune, who's in charge of uh, a thousand soldiers uh, stationed there in the, the corner of the temple, they had to rescue Paul uh, from the mob before they tore him apart. And we ended last week in an awkward spot because Paul was just about to stand up and address his beloved Jewish nation, his brothers and sisters that were part of the Jewish heritage he was going to share the gospel with them in their own heart language, the Hebrew. And Morgan told me that we, we ended there, and, and Jude leaned over to her and said, ooh, a cliffhanger. <laughs> what's, what's he expect us to do? Actually go home and read the Bible for ourselves and find out what happened? Yes, Jude, did you do that? You probably didn't, did you? You did? Oh, good, okay. I'm glad you're reading. In case you didn't read on, uh, Paul stood up there uh, in front of the, the courts in the, the Jewish nation and explained to them that he himself is in fact very Jewish. He had been born in Tarsus, but he came to Jerusalem as a young man to study with Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi of his day. And he persecuted any heretics against Judaism, especially those pesky Christians. He was zealous for pure untainted Judaism until that one day on the road to Damascus where the risen Christ appeared to him and blinded him and, and said, Saul, why do you persecute me? That changed everything in his life when he met Jesus who washed away his sins, who turned him from uh, death to life, who <clears throat> showed him the error of his legalistic ways. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm fine. It's not COVID. <laughs> uh, I imagine that there are some people that are hearing Paul's story for the first time, and they're moved by his testimony of what the gospel has done in his life. And I, I imagine that they were having their hearts stirred at the idea of the Messiah who had actually come to rescue his people. But when Paul started talking about how the, the Jewish nation had rejected the gospel and how the Lord had therefore sent him to the Gentiles, the people went nuts again and they turned violent. They threw off their cloaks. They started looking for the biggest rocks they could find to hurl at Paul's head. And in Acts 22:22, 22, 22, they yelled out, 
Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They want to kill him again. And the tribune can't understand it. Why are they so upset with this guy? What do they have against Paul that's so uh, troubling to them? So he says, no, 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 you, you don't rule here. We're not going to have mob justice. We're going to do this the Roman way. We're going to have Roman justice. And again, the Roman soldiers have to come out and save Paul from the violent crowd, only then to stretch him out for a flogging. This is the, the scourging with the cat of nine tails that Jesus received that basically was designed to rip the skin off of a man's back. But Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship to escape. Early church history says that Paul's parents were Roman citizens back in Tarsus. We don't know anything really about his family, but uh, it's tradition that they were slaves who had a kind Roman master who freed them, thus granting them Roman citizenship. Therefore, Paul was born as a Roman citizen to Roman parents. The Holman, the Holman Bible Dictionary, <coughs> I don't need water, I'm okay. The, it says, <coughs> the Roman citizen <coughs> had the right of appeal after a trial. <coughs> this happens, that's Satan, right? When it's got to be every time. Exemption from imperial service, the right to choose between a local or Roman trial, and protection from degrading forms of punishment like scourging. Paul might have carried a wax tablet that functioned as a birth certificate or certificate of citizenship in order to prove his Roman citizenship. However, most people who claimed citizenship were trusted because the penalty for impersonating a Roman citizen was death. So the Tribune says, well, we can't flog him, so let's just settle this whole Paul situation once and for all. Let's drag him out in front of the Sanhedrin. Remember those 70 elders of the Jewish high court? Let's drag him out in front of them and settle this thing once and for all. And when Paul appears in front of them, he knows a lot of these guys. Scholars tell us that when Paul was studying in Jerusalem, he ran around the same social circles as a lot of the Sanhedrin, a lot of these elite Jewish authorities. So look how he addresses them in Acts 23, verse 1. On the next day, looking intently to the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul addresses them as brothers because he knows a lot of them. And having a good conscience is a, a big deal to Paul. He knows that this is uh, going to be, you know, an important uh, moral consciousness for Paul. He always lives his life in sometimes controversial ways that get him in trouble, but he sleeps well at night knowing that his conscience is clear before God. How's your conscience today? Apparently the high priest thought Paul was being a bit presumptuous to claim a clear conscience. So look at verse 2. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Give him a smack. Smack him for his insubordination. And Paul knew this was illegal. This is against the Jewish law to hit someone who's not been judged yet, who's not been pronounced uh, guilty. So look at verse 3. And Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> you ever call someone a whitewashed wall? I have. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Boom! 
got him. Paul was right. He was on the right side of the law. And he calls this guy out. Now, why did he not know it was Ananias? We don't know uh, th th that yet, but he knew it was illegal. He knew that he was right. And he calls him a whitewashed wall. You know, Jewish people in these days would paint the outside of their tombs with whitewash to, to make it look presentable and, and without blemish. But on the inside of those tombs, it's full of death and rot and decay. It's the same uh, word that Jesus used to describe the hypocrites in his ministry, whitewashed tombs. And Paul knew, again, that he was right, so he lets him have it. You know, when I was watching the presidential debate at my alma mater at Belmont on Thursday night, I kept thinking of, uh, I was telling Morgan, I was like, oh, he should have said this, or he should have said that. Both sides, I just enjoy arguing. My, my flesh loves winning an, an argument. My flesh loves being right and proving the other person wrong. My flesh loves to, to have the truth and to be on the right side of the truth and, and really to, to put someone else down in my fallen flesh. It's not a good thing. And especially because it's not what Jesus did. It's not how Jesus' followers should live either. Winning arguments, slamming the other side, that's not the way of Christ. Look at 1 Peter 2, 23. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Just in, part, you know, in traffic, <laughs> I'll, I'll suffer and I will threaten, right? That's not the way of Jesus. So Paul's out of line. Again, I, I think he's out of step with the example of his Lord. He's not doing what Jesus did, who said, Lord, they know not what they do. Forgive them. Instead, Paul's bitter and he's angry. And really, he's in danger of blowing his witness in front of these influential Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Not everything Paul does in Acts is an example to follow. He's not Jesus, right? And what happens when we choose our way over Jesus' way? It doesn't go well. Look at verse four. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? It was Ananias who spoke. And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Some scholars think that Paul's eyesight was so poor he couldn't see who was talking. Or, or maybe he was speaking ironically here, sarcastically. Oh, I didn't know that a high priest would speak that way. I can't imagine this guy's actually the high priest who would order me struck before I'm judged. Whatever the reason, Paul owns his mistake and admits it. That's, that says a lot about his character. You know, yesterday, Jude had a bad football game and the team lost and he got in the car and was complaining about his teammates and some stuff. And, you know, I said, Jude, your attitude, man. And he said, I'm sorry. And he said, thanks for coming to the game today. And he owned his mistake. Later, I told him, I was so proud of you for owning your mistake and for apologizing. Paul does that here. It says a lot about his character. Whatever the reason, it's not a great start for Paul. He, to insult the high priest is not a good way to begin this trial, and it's going to get worse. Look at verse uh, 6. Paul decides to use his cleverness to split the Sanhedrin and get them to fight each other. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, 
he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So again, he's got them fighting each other. I would think, boom, great play, Paul. Well done. You got the focus off of yourself and on to these guys fighting each other. Great move. What a clever trick he pulled. Is that what Jesus would do? No. Again, he's blown his witness. He has no opportunity now to share the gospel with them. Some of you may know that in the first century, there were these different, different groups of, within Judaism. You had the real uh, kind of the anti-supernatural um, liberals of their day, the Sadducees who denied miracles and denied uh, any kind of angels or spirits. And then you had the really deeply conservative Pharisees who believed in all of it, and they believed in the resurrection, uh, except for the only resurrection that mattered, uh, Jesus' resurrection, they denied but they believed in a general resurrection to come. So he gets them fighting each other and it becomes so fierce that the, the tribune has to step back in and rescue Paul again. The Pharisees are saying, this is our guy, we love Paul. The Sadducees are saying, let's kill him. We gotta get rid of him. Look at verse 10. When the dissension became violent, again, these guys are so violent. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers once again to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. This poor tribune, he keeps trying to deal with the Paul situation and he keeps having to intervene by sending troops. A few days before, he had to send troops in to save Paul in the temple courts. Then he allowed him to address the crowd in Hebrew and he probably didn't even know what Paul was saying and a riot broke out. Now he sets up this meeting with the Sanhedrin and it turns violent again. So he throws Paul in prison trying to think of what to do with this guy. What a dark night that must have been for Paul. He'd been beaten, he'd been bloodied by his own people in the temple courts. He'd seen this violence and dissension break out. His beloved Jerusalem, the city where he'd trained, the city where God's temple uh, existed, the, the place where his people gathered for worship had thoroughly rejected him and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even the church there, remember the church in Jerusalem was struggling. It was full of a bunch of legalistic uh, former Jews that still clung to their Jewishness more than they clung to the cross of Christ. How disheartening for Paul, all his hopes of you know, convincing the leaders, the Sanhedrin of the gospel had been dashed and squandered. Some of you may find yourself in a dark time in your life, a dark place. You, we all will at some point. We all have those days where we just want to find the biggest blanket we can and just curl up somewhere and, and forget the world. That's kind of where Paul is at right now. How does Christ meet us? in those moments. Look at verse 11. 
The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Lord stood by him. You know, I love these uh, charity golf events. Have you seen this? A couple of years ago, they had, I think maybe a year ago, the match. It was Tiger Woods versus Phil Mickelson for, you know, millions of dollars. Then they had the match part two, where I think it was uh, Phil Mickelson and uh, Peyton Manning. Or was it Phil and Tom Brady? I think it was Phil and Tom Brady versus Tiger and Peyton Manning. And Tiger and Peyton Manning won that one. And now they just announced they're having another one in November, the match part three. It's uh, Steph Curry, he wanted in on this. He said, I wanna, I wanna do one of these. So Steph Curry and Peyton Manning will be on a team against Phil Mickelson and Charles Barkley. Now Charles Barkley is not a great golfer. If you've ever seen him have a, he's got a real hitch in his swing, it's kind of goofy looking. But he's teamed up with Phil Mickelson. Phil's won 44 PGA events, including five majors. He's one of the greatest golfers to ever play the game. If I was on a team with Phil, I'm a not a good golfer, but if I was playing with Phil, we'd have a shot to beat anybody. Even two professional athletes who are very good at golf, because Phil is that good. What's happening here is Paul is teamed up with the risen Lord Jesus Christ as his partner, as his teammate, as his Lord of his heart and of his life. When verse 11 says the Lord stood by Paul, it doesn't mean that Paul had a vision of Christ. It doesn't mean that Paul had a dream of Christ. It means the Lord stood by him. Jesus showed up in the cell physically alongside of Paul. What could possibly be more encouraging than to have Jesus show up Again, the risen Lord stands there in person by Paul in the middle of the night. It reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? One of the coolest stories in all of scripture, these exiled Israelites find themselves in Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar says, you gotta bow down and worship my statue. And they say, we're not gonna do it. He says, I'm gonna throw you in the furnace then if you don't bow down and worship me. They say, go ahead. Look at verse, uh, Daniel chapter three, verse 17. If you throw us in the fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, I love that. But if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that no matter what, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so the king's furious. He says, fire up the furnace hotter than it's ever been before. And then throw them in there and the guards who throw them in get too close and they're burned up immediately and, and these three guys get thrown into the fire. And then in verse 25, you see the king's reply. He, he looks into the fire, he answered and he said, but I see four men unbound. He asked the guards, did you throw three men in? They say, yeah, we threw three in. He says, but I see four unbound, walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Christ showed up. Christ showed up to protect these servants of God who refuse to compromise. Christ shows up in our lives in these times in sometimes miraculous ways and sometimes more subtle ways. 
Sometimes it's, it's just a God wink. But if you're a Christian here today, know this. Jesus promises never to leave us or forsake us. When you get the cancer diagnosis, when your marriage is on the rocks, when your loved one dies, Jesus promises never to leave us or forsake us. He speaks to us personally as our partner, our, our ringer like Phil Mickelson, our ace that we have on our side. He walks with us throughout our earthly existence saying to us as he did to Paul, take courage, take heart, take courage. It's one word in Greek, tharse. Tharse is a really cool word. It means to, to be encouraged, to, to take heart. It's a word of comfort and security. Man, do you need to hear that word today? Goodness, I do. I don't know what's gonna happen. Our Corona advisory team is telling us that it may be two years before we can safely gather again without masks. What? How are we gonna do church? What's gonna happen to Woodmont? What's, uh, what's gonna happen to my family? What's gonna happen on this corner? I get anxious. Political divisions, racial wounds that are still deep in this country. I, I, I get all these thoughts and I get worked up. And Jesus speaks to me, Tharse, take heart. It's gonna be okay. Take courage. It's this really cool word because only Jesus uses this word throughout the New Testament. No one else uses this word, Tharse. It's the same word he gives to the bedridden paralytic in Matthew chapter nine, verse two. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's the same word he uses with the woman who had the 12 year bleeding uh, issue, Matthew nine, verse 22. Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. It's the same word he uses with, with the frightened disciples as he walks out to them on the water in the midst of a storm, Matthew 14, verse 27. He says to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. It's the same word that he uses in John 16, 33, in the upper room, the night of his crucifixion, Jesus says to his frightened disciples, take heart, for I have overcome the world. This is a word that we need today, isn't it? This is a word that we need Jesus to tell us personally, Darce, take heart heart. Jesus assures Paul to, of his ministry in Rome. God's not done with Paul yet. He says in verse 11, take courage. He says, take courage for as you testify to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I'm not done with you, Paul. Be encouraged. You know, I've heard it said that, that God's servants are immortal until their work on earth is done. That means God's servants never die a premature death. It's all part of God's plan and his timing. You know, we've had several church members uh, in my four years here who've been really close to death. We thought we were gonna lose them. And families began making funeral arrangements and, and, and meeting with uh, me and, and with funeral home and all this kind of stuff. And then they recovered. And, and I've, I've talked with some of these people and they've said, guess God's not done with me yet. I said, that's right, God's not done with you yet. He's got a plan, he's working it out through you still. You know, God wasn't done with Paul and his plans can never be thwarted or changed. We see God's providential care again for Paul in the next few verses, these 
40 radicals, these dagger-carrying assassins, Sicarios in, in, in Greek, take a vow not to eat or drink until they've killed Paul. They even tell the chief priest about their plot, and they try to use the chief priest. They say, hey, uh, why don't you call another meeting with Paul to get him out here, and we're going to kill him. All right? And they say, yeah, 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 let's do it. Let's do it. We've got to get rid of this guy. And that should have been the end of it. That should have been the end of Paul, but God intervened again. Look at verse 16 and 17. Now the son of Paul's sister. What? We don't know anything about Paul's family. This is the first time we find out he's got a sister and a nephew. When he heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Again, God intervenes to save Paul's life. We know that Paul apparently has a sister and a nephew who live in Jerusalem, and they must have been Roman citizens too, because the nephew just walks right into the barracks where Paul is. And Paul's nephew delivers the news to the tribune that these guys are trying to kill Paul, that they're not going to eat or drink until they kill Paul. And, and thus, Paul's time in Jerusalem ends in style. Look at verse 22 to 24. He called two of the centurions, the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, <clears throat> get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. You know, Jesus, years before this, had a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Well, Paul has the triumphal exit. As a condemned criminal who was this close to death, his, this is the greatest picture, I think. His would-be assassins, whose bellies are growling because they haven't eaten anything, have to watch Paul ride out of the city with 470 soldiers in this triumphal exit as he goes to see Felix. I read about a famous pianist, a piano player named Ignaz Jan Paderewski. You ever heard of this guy? I never heard of him. I read this interesting story about him. He was the most famous and beloved concert pianist in the world in the early 1900s. And he came to America to, to do a tour. And he was in one of the, the great music halls of our nation and it was a black tie affair. It was an evening event, and it was very formal. And all the high society elites were there to see Paderewski do his thing. And this one woman had brought her nine-year-old son, who was taking piano lessons, and she wanted to have him inspired to be a great pianist himself by watching Paderewski. And so the, the boy's squirming in his seat, much like my kids are over here, and he's, you know, waiting for the show to get started, and Mom's, you know, yapping to some other high society moms. And so the kid sneaks off from his mom and he sees this beautiful Ebony Steinway piano in the middle of the stage. And he's like, oh, I can play that. I'm taking lessons. And he climbs up on stage and the crowd starts to gasp. And they're like, somebody get that kid, you know, get, where's his mother? She should be ashamed. I'm sure the mom's heart just sank. And the kid puts his trembling fingers on these beautiful white keys and begins to play chopsticks. I don't even know how to play chopsticks. Aaron had to show me today how to play chopsticks. I don't even know how that works. He started to do the da 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 you know. 
And everybody's like, get him off the stage. But Paderewski was waiting in the wings and he heard the kid began to play and he comes running out to, to great applause and, and the people that were trying to get the kid off stop. And Paderewski whispers to the kid, keep playing. Don't stop playing. Whatever you do, just, just keep playing. And he began to play a counter melody to Chopsticks and it made such beautiful music. And he started doing his things, improvising and, and, and working alongside of this kid to do something amazing and beautiful. That's what Jesus does with our lives. And honestly, uh, the music that we're making a lot of times is just chopsticks. We're just doing the best we can a lot of times. It's not a, a masterful concerto that we're playing. It's more chopsticks than Rachmaninoff. But Jesus comes alongside of us and, and whispers to us, take heart. Don't stop playing. Keep going. Keep doing, read one word in the Bible, Barry said. Just read one word today. Read two words tomorrow. Just, just give your feeble best and be amazed at what Christ does with it as he begins to play the counter melody to our piddling little chopsticks, as he brings out in his genius, in his mastery, as he brings out a beautiful song in our own lives. It's not us, we can't claim it, it's all his greatness, all for his glory. And we get to be part of that. Isn't that amazing? You may say, I don't have it all together, Nathan, I'm not a preacher, I'm not eloquent. You don't have to be. That's what Barry was saying in his testimony. All you have to do is give your feeble best to Christ and let him make a masterpiece out of it. Are you willing to do that today? Maybe you're, you're very discouraged at what's going on in the world. It's, it's easy. You almost can't not be discouraged when you watch the news today. But maybe you need to hear Christ say to you, take heart, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with your family. I'm not done with your church. I'm not done with Nashville. I'm not done with Belmont and Vanderbilt and Lipscomb and TSU. I'm not done with 15th Avenue. I'm not done with North Nashville. I'm not done with East Nashville. I'm not done with South Nashville. I'm not done with West Nashville. I'm doing something. Be a part of it. Just give your feeble best and be amazed at what I bring out of it. Will you join him in that today? Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that even in our feeble attempts, our frail attempts to live a life of significance, to live a life that matters for your kingdom, to live a life that would bless others, to live a life that would advance your cause and elevate your glory. And we, we keep messing up, oh God, but you come alongside of us. You sit next to us and you whisper to us, don't stop. Keep playing, whatever you do. And take heart, for I have overcome the world. God, we thank you that you are Lord, that no matter if Joe Biden or Donald Trump wins an election, that you still reign. And that your purposes will not be thwarted. The plans you have for us, whether it may be to testify about you in Rome or in Nashville or wherever it is, that you 
uh, will not allow us to taste death until we have accomplished that work that you have for us to do. Help us to lean into it. Help us to play our best for you. It may just be all we can give you is to read one word in, in your Bible. Maybe tomorrow we can read two words. And oh God, you will transform us through your Holy Spirit so that we can play a beautiful tune that will bless others mightily and advance your kingdom. God, we thank you that you show up when we are in dark times like you showed up with Paul, that you stand beside us and you whisper, Tharse, take courage. God, I'm, I'm so anxious, I'm so afraid so many times. Help me and help us to believe like Paul believed that you will never leave us or forsake us and that you will accomplish what you want to accomplish through us. Oh God, we love you and pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. We're gonna have a time of response now. Uh, maybe you haven't been a part of what God's doing in Nashville for a long time. Maybe you have not been sleeping well because you don't have a clear conscience before God or maybe because you're so riddled with anxiety and fear right now. Lay that down today. You don't need to carry that any longer. Give it to Christ. Let him sit next to you and tell you, take courage. It's going to be okay. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to play my melody alongside of yours. It's going to be awesome. Maybe you just need to respond in your heart to God. Let me do my best for you this week, Lord, so that you can make a beautiful song out of my life. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ in the first place. And you need to do that for the very first time. If you're watching online or uh, on TV, I invite you to call the number uh, 615-297-5303 right now and talk to someone about what it means to give your life to Christ. You can fill out the connection card online and say you want to become a Christian. There's no greater privilege I would have than to call you and meet with you, or maybe just over the phone or on Zoom or whatever, and, and help you understand what it means to give your life to Christ and to die to yourself and to be raised into a whole new kind of existence. Maybe you're just struggling with grief and you need to deal with that in a healthy way. I encourage you to call the church, get involved with Grief Share and, and Jan Bennett and, and Braden and Lee Ellen who are here today. They can help you uh, walk through that journey. Whatever it is that you need to do, we're talking about, we're going to sing trust and obey. Will you trust God when he says, I'm not done with you. I have a plan for you. Just as I had you testify to the facts in Jerusalem, I'm going to have you testify in Rome. Will you trust God and then will you obey him? in obedience. So much of the book of Acts is about obedience to God. And Paul's obedience is an example for us to follow. Will you trust and obey? Whatever you need to do today, I encourage you to make that in your heart, that decision, and respond to the Lord during this time.